Good morning. We're continuing our series on the names of Jesus. And today we're going to look at the title of Holy One of God. Now, before we get too far in, I want to define the terms for us so we know what we're talking about. When we, when we talk about holy or holiness, what do we mean? Specifically, what does this title for Jesus as the Holy One of God mean to us? I want you to picture this, an alien crash lands in your backyard in Panama City. This isn't very far-fetched if you've lived here for a long time. Maybe some of you know some aliens. And he hops out of his little saucer and he says, who are you? I would say, well, I'm one of eight billion. Look around. I am Heath. And I would give him some sort of information. I would say, I am Florida man. You see, if you want to tell what humans are like, it's fairly easy. There's lots of us. We're a little complex, but, you know, we're generally the same. Now, imagine you're Moses. And you stand before a bush that's burning. And it starts talking to you. And you ask that bush, who are you? Does it say, well, I'm one of many gods. Moses, you were in Egypt, don't you know? Don't you have lots of gods? Well, I'm just like them. What does Yahweh say? The one true living God. I am who I am. Now that's a remarkable statement. That's a marvelous statement about God's holiness. And Moses understands it. Because in Exodus 15, 11, he is bursting out in song. He sings this wonderful song and he says this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That's what we call a rhetorical question because the answer obviously is no one. I know those gods. There's none like you. God cannot point outside of himself in order to describe himself. There's only one Yahweh. Isaiah 40, 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness can you compare it with him? So when we speak about the holiness of God, what we're really talking about is his complete and utter apartness, his otherness. He is distinct. He is unique. His holiness encompasses his transcendent majesty. And since he's so far above us, this makes him and him alone worthy alone of worship, honor, glory, and praise. Another way to think of it is to think of God like a, the holiness of God like a prism. And you hold it up to the light. And it's multi, multifaceted. And you just see all these different cuts and all these different things. He's separate. There is no diamond like him. There is no other gemstone like our God. He is utterly pure and holy. And you see the title of Holy One of God belonged to him alone. That is until 2,000 some years ago when a little baby was born in a manger. And the angel appears to Mary and he, he says, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. Do you understand the implications of this? Jesus is being given the title that Yahweh alone holds. Yahweh says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. There's no one else. And then Jesus shows up and says, I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And before Abraham was, I am. The Apostle Paul celebrates this in Colossians 1.15 with a tremendous amen. He writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The angels could look down and see Jesus and they'd say, he's just like his dad. He looks just like the father. The apostle John in his prologue says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Why are we here today? This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is what we've been celebrating. This is what we celebrate every single Sunday. Week in and week out, we are celebrating Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. The great St. Augustine tried to capture the beauty of this, the incarnation, when he wrote this. He said, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey. That truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended upon wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. This is the wonder of the incarnation. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased in flesh with us to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. The pastor Stephen Lawson gives us a good summary then of what this means when we apply it to Jesus. He says this, Jesus is infinitely, absolutely holy, fully and perfectly divine. He is transcendent, majestic. He came down from heaven above to save sinners, yet he is set apart from sinners in that he is completely sinless. Without any moral blemish, perfect in all his ways, his being is holy, his character is holy, his mind is holy, his motives are holy, his words are holy, his actions are holy, his ways are holy, his judgments are holy. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, every inch, every ounce, the totality, the sum, the substance of the second person of the Godhead is equally holy with God the Father. Amen. We worship the one true and holy God. There's none like him. Now, before we get into this, let's pray and let's thank him for all that he is. Jesus, you are holy, holy, holy. We would meet you here today. We would see you, Lord. We would harmonize with the angels. We would sing with all of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is your name alone. The name that is above every name. Help us to do that today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to read the first portion here. This is Luke 1, 26 through 35. And then we're going to jump right into Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, right after. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, 
Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now we're going to read Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Now, if you haven't uh, guessed it yet, when I speak about the holiness of God, this is too lofty a mountain for us to climb uh, in our time today. But we're going to do a speed climb. We're going to do some quick points. And I say quick, but I am going to give it the time I think it deserves. And so these are our points. First of all, Christ's holiness will crush us. And I hope it does. Because I want to be crushed. I want you to be crushed because our second point is this. Christ's holiness will heal us. We must be wounded. We must be cut open by the physician before we can be healed. And the third point is this. The pursuit of holiness will make us sing. Many of you are familiar with this statement. The king is dead. Long live the king. It's a contradictory statement. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's a proclamation which announces a secession. It's meant to assure the people, hey, the king's dead. Don't worry, we got a new one. You're going to be okay. There's, there's some sort of assurance in line that we're not going to be leaderless. Well, here in our Isaiah passage, we have a dead king. And then we're immediately shown a vision of another king. A very different king sitting on a throne. You see, King Uzziah had become king of Judah at 16 years of age. If you're 16 here with us today, imagine becoming king. And then he reigned for 52 years before he died. That's a long time. But Uzziah was a decently good king. So if you've ever had good leadership, that's okay. You know, I think the queen, she reigned for 72 years. And people were very upset when Queen Elizabeth passed away. Well, King Uzziah has died. Now, we got rid of this in America. Uh, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. Anybody want 52 years of any of our past presidents? The good news is bad kings, bad rulers, they go. They go. But this time a decent king is dead. And so Judah mourns. And there's uncertainty. And it's in the midst of this that Isaiah is given a vision of the heavenly throne room itself. 
Here's a king who will not die. And he's better than decent. He's holy. He's magnificent. He's majestic. And Isaiah sees it and he, his socks are knocked off, to put it in modern vernacular. He is ruined. He's undone. Now you might be asking, why are we reading this? this is, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. Why are we looking at this Isaiah 6 passage? Did you know this passage, Isaiah 6, is quoted in all four Gospels? And whenever it's quoted in all four, that's very important. That means that all the gospel writers saw this and they go, this is vital to what we're talking about. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus gives a little bit of you know, commentary about the passage. And then in John 12, 41, listen to this juicy piece of information. Isaiah is seeing Yahweh in his vision. And then John writes this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is the he? Who is the him? Well, it's Jesus. John is putting the two and two together. He's saying, do you know why Isaiah was saying that? Because he saw the pre-incarnate Christ. He saw Jesus. He saw his holiness. And it knocked him flat. Let's take this piece by piece. I want us to put ourselves in Isaiah's shoes here. And let's see how we would fare. Isaiah 6.1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. I just went to a wedding not too long ago. And uh, you have the bride, right? You have the groom. And the groom just kind of saunters in. Everybody's like, yes, very good. Where's the bride? And here she comes, the fanfare, the music. She has this flowing robe, gorgeous. She's dazzling. She's beautiful. Everyone is, you know, we're hushed. We stand for her. Here she comes. Her, her dress is filling the room. She is captivating everyone. Now take that imagery and put it in the trash. Because this blows it out of the water. You see, all human comparisons fail. Because our king's entire robe, it fills the temple of heaven. He fills all of time and space. This holy one, all of heaven is covered with his splendor. All eyes are on him. Isaiah 6, 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, in all of Scripture, this is the only reference to the seraphim. All, these, uh, all the references is only one towards these creatures called seraphim. And the description of them here is otherworldly. I mean, imagine six wings, and it's terrifying. Even their name alone means fiery ones. So here are the six-winged fiery ones standing before the throne of God. In Scripture, their catchphrase is, be not afraid, right? Be not afraid. Hey, be not afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because people are always afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, they just, you, they're waiting for it. You know, ah, don't be afraid. Okay, you know. But here the angelic beings are ministering in the immediate unveiled presence of God. His glory is dazzling. His glory is piercing and radiant. And they have to cover their faces. The fiery ones have to cover their faces from His holiness. If one of these seraphim manifested itself right here, what would you do? Well, you'd melt. You'd just melt, right? 
You'd be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's what he's saying. What army on earth could withstand one of these angels? And yet they cover their faces before our God. You see, God's the one who shaped galaxies. He dug out the oceans. Would you stand before him? Could you stand before him? Would you dare defy him? It's insanity. The Bible calls God a consuming fire. He dwells in unapproachable light. Again, go back to Moses. Moses said, I'd like to see you. And God says, I don't think think you know what you're asking. And he says, I'll show you my back. And Moses sees his back, turns his hair white. And when he comes down from the mountain, his face is glowing. He has a holy sunburn. And the people go, no, 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 cover that up. We can't even look at you. Even just a reflection of God's back is too much. Can you stand before him? Could you stand before this holy God and say, no, you listen to me. It's absurd. Isaiah 6, 3. One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Pastor R.C. Sproul, who is now in the glory, seeing our Lord, he loved to preach on the holiness of God. And he had this to say. He said, the Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 love, 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 justice, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. He's holy, holy, holy. He says, this is a dimension of God that consumes his very essence. And when it is manifested to Isaiah, we read that at the sound of the voices of the seraphim, the doorposts, the thresholds of the temple themselves shook and began to tremble. Do you hear that? Inanimate, lifeless, unintelligible parts of creation in the presence of the manifestation of the holiness of God had the good sense to be moved. How can we then, made in his image, be indifferent or apathetic to his majesty? If you can't say amen, say ouch. Well, what is Isaiah's response to the holiness of God? Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, depending on your translation, Isaiah says, I'm undone. I'm doomed. I'm ruined. I'm lost. He gets it. Because you see the appropriate response all throughout the Bible, time and time again, when you encounter the holiness of God, you are defeated. You are crushed under the weight of his holiness. You cannot stand beneath it. Job Throughout his whole book, he's had these horrible counselors. He's been wondering what's up with God. What is he doing? Why is he treating me this way? And then at the very end, God answers him. And he says, I heard about you. Now I've seen you. Job 42, 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Lord, I didn't know what I was talking about. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I get it. Now, this is where I want you to feel it. Because if you stand before this holy God today on your own, if you are living in sin, 
If you are still apart from Christ, you will be squashed like the little bug you are by its holiness. You will stand condemned. You will know it. You will feel it. The weight of his perfection, the weight of his holiness in comparison to all of your unrighteousness. That will leave you in despair. You see, you cannot, you will not have any excuses before him. Will you sit there before him and say, well, Lord, you just don't understand. (laughs) You'll be silent. You'll stand before the floodwaters of God's wrath and that dam of grace, which has been so patient with you, with me. For all those years, that dam of grace will burst under the weight of all the wrath you've been storing up because you refuse to come to him. Now you see, that's justice. That's what we deserve. None of us actually deserve mercy from God. All of us are born into sin. All of us deserve nothing but his utter displeasure. And Isaiah gets it. You see, Isaiah, above any of us here, he actually had something to boast about. He was a prophet of the Most High God. And in his presence, he says, woe is me. The one thing he could have said, you know, this tongue of mine, Lord, has been consecrated by you. I've spoken holy things, Lord. He says, the tongue's the worst part of me. (laughs) My tongue is the part, the part that I could claim most of all as being holy. That's that's what I need washed. Filthy rags before his perfection. Well, what hope do we have? Well, the answer is none. The answer is none. None apart from a holy God. None apart from Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, showing us unmerited grace and mercy. Why would he do it? If you ask yourself that, why would he do that? Here's the answer. Because he's holy. You see, because because he's holy, because he loves us for no other reason than it's his good and gracious will to shower us Shower us with lavish grace. We do not deserve it. Why why is he so good to us? What is Isaiah's hope? What is our hope? Jesus. Jesus. It's the one who sits on the throne. That's our hope in life and death. Our second point. Now I want to heal you. I want Jesus Christ to heal you. His holiness will heal us. I need a mediator. You need a mediator. We need cleansing from God. We need washing due to our lack of holiness. Even our good deeds need washing apart from Christ. What can be done? Isaiah 6, 6 through 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. He had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We've taken a little break here. But months ago, I talked about how Jesus, the radical nature of the sinless perfection of Christ, is that when Jesus touches you, he takes what is unclean and he makes it clean. You see, in the Old Testament law, because we are sinful, whatever we touch, we have to be kept holy, right? If we touch something unclean, that makes us unclean. Now we have to go be holy again. We have to go be cleansed again. But Jesus reverses the natural order. Because he himself is the fountain of holiness, he takes on human flesh. 
and he redeems it. What we had perverted, he redeems. The bread of life sleeps in a crude little manger, a feeding trough for animals. And he elevates it because he's the bread of life and now we are fed. He takes a Roman torture device meant to be shameful, meant to curse someone, and he himself, becoming our curse, now swallows it up in life. Triumph. The grave. Death. Where is your sting? You see what he's done. And here he takes Isaiah's sinful little tongue. If you don't think it's sinful, go to James. James does not like the tongue, does he? He knows what the tongue can do. And he takes his little tongue, cleanses it with a coal from the altar. And the important thing to see is, does he need the coal? No. He doesn't even need the coal. The reason he's using the coal is because it's a visible, tangible sign for Isaiah to go, I'm cleansed. I'm cleansed. And this is the the importance of sacraments. Why Why do we do the bread and wine? Why do we do water? Why do we... Why do we do these things? Because we're ignorant. And God wants to strengthen us. He wants to give us means of grace. So the bread and wine, the bread and juice is just bread and juice. And yet God through his spirit works through it to bring us grace. The water is just water. But it's an outward sign of an inward cleansing that has taken place. So Isaiah says, I'm cleansed. I'm washed. I'm clean because you have called me clean. And though he feels unworthy, God says, I'm calling you to great and holy things. And the same is true with all of us today. If you bear the name of Christ, if you believe in Jesus, the weight of the law, the weight of God's perfect holiness has now been taken off of your shoulders. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light and he says here take it not guilty bible says not guilty we are new creations we've died to sin we live to christ jesus says i come not to condemn the world i came to save it he came not that we might know the displeasure of god but that we might see the smile of his father god is for you in christ that's Good news. And if we want to be cleansed of our sins, if you are here today and you say, I am undone. You have no idea the sins I've committed. Oh, he, he knows. And today could be the day where you put your faith in Christ and you hear these words. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Our final point. The pursuit of holiness will make us sing. Uh, There's a pastor, Kevin DeYoung. I believe he's a PCA pastor. He's in our denomination. He has a lovely little book called The Whole in Our Holiness. And he says this. He says, Passionate exhortation to pursue gospel-driven holiness is barely heard in most of our churches. I'm talking about the failure of Christians, especially younger generations, and especially those most disdainful of religion and legalism, To take seriously one of the great aims of our redemption, one of the most required evidences for eternal life, namely our holiness. Here's what he's saying. If I tell people, hey, you should go to church. There's a large group of people that will say, you're being a legalist. And if I said, you should read your Bible. 
you should pray. You should strive for holiness. They'd say, you're being a legalist. But that's not legalism. That's literally commands from God. God calls us to be holy. He says, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. The Bible says without holiness, no one will see God. And so why do we balk at this idea of pursuing holiness? I think there's a few reasons. I think there's a few reasons why we do this. One is that we've equated holiness with works-based righteousness. We think that, okay, we don't need to work. This is just works-based righteousness. We're trying to earn our salvation. We've celebrated all that Christ has saved us from, but we've often neglected what Christ has actually saved us for. What, what are you saved for? What's your salvation for? What are you supposed to do now on earth? Another problem is that Christians have often equated holiness with just abstaining from things. They go, well, I'm definitely holy. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with, go with girls who do. You know, I don't have a tattoo. I don't, I don't dance. You know? And we said, well, those things mean you're holy. Well done. Many churches try to be cool, and so they end up accommodating to the culture, labeling something as unholy or saying that's ungodly, that's judgmental. We all fear legalism. I get it. We're all frightened by words like diligence, effort, duty. And finally, we face the reality that pursuing holiness is hard work. And many of us have tried and we've just given up. Today I'm praying for what I'm going to call a reformed holiness movement. (laughs) I want us to be people who harmonize with heaven. I want us to be people who go, yes, holy, holy, holy. I love that. I want to be holy because my Father calls me to be holy. I want to be obedient as as the Son was obedient. I want to be like Jesus Christ. This is not Nike Christianity. This is not just do it. Right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying be obedient because you love God. Pursue holiness because he's called you to pursue holiness. You see, the point of all theology, all this wonderful doctrine that we love so much, is to drive us to Jesus. It's to drive us to Christ's likeness. It's to drive us to holiness of life and to worship him. As we know, God never calls us to do something that's impossible. If he calls us to do something, he's going to give us the grace to accomplish it. So what I want you to hear today is this. Holiness is possible. Now, I didn't say sinless perfectionism is possible. You will never be sinless in this life. This is not works righteousness. This is a pursuit of holiness. You're not trash. Okay? You're not trash. You are not worthless. You are an adopted child of the Most High God. Through your relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you can be holy and pleasing to God. That's wonderful news. Now, as we close, I want to give us just some quick practical ways. How do we pursue holiness in our life? Uh, If these sound familiar, they should. They're literally just the commandments, okay? First of all, if we want to harmonize with heaven, we need to worship God alone. That's the first commandment. And we need to worship him rightly. I saw a megachurch had posted uh, their Christmas Eve service, and they had uh, drummers on a fly system. And these drummers were flying over the audience, you know, with Christmas lights. And I thought, 
That's just the dumbest thing on, on this whole earth. I mean, sure, it's cool. But is that reverent? Is that how we should worship this holy God where the angels cover their faces from him? Some people will say, you're being a legalist again. Again, you're being a legalist. Don't you think God just likes the way we worship? Don't you think he'll just accept any sort of way we worship him? In the Bible, God, people literally die for worshiping him incorrectly, okay? So it's like, he's given us certain parameters. And he needs to be worshipped in a certain way. The Westminster Confession says he is to be esteemed, honored, adored, loved, desired, feared, trusted, hoped in, delighted in, and rejoiced over. That's our God. That's the first commandment. The second commandment is no false idols. Get rid of anything that would keep you from going to Jesus alone. There is no Jesus and. You don't need Jesus and this, Jesus and that. It's just Jesus. Anything that gets in the way of you worshiping him rightly should be tossed out. This is the way we hollow his image. Again, it's why the Westminster Confession takes images of God so seriously. We don't want to ruin this. We don't want to take his image and distort it. There are places on this earth right now where his image is being distorted in mankind. Do you understand that? There are places right now while we worship where men and women are being abused, are being treated like objects. Can we sit by while that happens? How do we honor God's image will correlate with how we treat other image bearers. You understand that? Third, we hollow God's name. Jesus teaches us. They say, how do we pray? He says, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That means not taking his name in vain. It means not speaking of him flippantly. This involves the way we pray, the oaths we take, the way we handle sacraments. It involves missions and evangelism. If I truly believe that his name is not being hallowed in the deepest, darkest recesses of this world, then I need to go. I need to send people to go. Because I want his name to be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. You see, pursuing of holiness will, will inflame your heart for missions. I want God's name to be holy. Fourth, we keep the Sabbath day holy. The word holy occurs 600 times in the Bible. More than that. 600 times. The entire Israelite system of worship revolved around holiness. We have holy people with holy clothes. In a holy land, at a holy place, using holy utensils, holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by a holy law. Do you think holiness is important? What about us? Well, we don't need that stuff anymore, Heath. We, we're done with that. First Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm not going to name any names, but there are churches that are canceling services next week for Christmas. And I just think that's absurd. Is that how we keep Christ in Christmas? Is that how we keep the Sabbath day holy by just canceling? We're not going to worship him on that day? You see, God is inviting us into his Sabbath rest. 
You you have walked into the courts of heaven and Christ has promised to be with us. And when when, when you don't honor the Sabbath, you say, no thanks. You see, my idea, Jesus, of rest is better than your idea. The psalmist writes, for a day in your courts, one day, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Do you hear that? How many of us feel the same way? Fifth, finally, we must show him honor, and that means keeping his commandments. You see, gospel grace makes way for gospel living. Part of your sanctification is simply learning how to live out your justification. The Bible says you are hidden in Christ, therefore live as Christ has declared you to be. He says you're hidden in Christ, you are holy, you are set apart, now act like it. You, you, have met, you are a new creation. Be that. You can be a rule-keeping Pharisee and be so far away from holiness, it's not even funny. That's because holiness is not just about abstaining. It's about a passionate desire to receive God, embrace Him, love Him, and dwell with Him. You want to be with Him. That's good news that Jesus came to earth. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, I want you to hear this. If your knowledge of God's holiness doesn't increase your love for God, then I would suggest that you've never actually encountered this holy God. Oftentimes, the greatest act of faith that any of us will ever make is to see ourselves as Isaiah saw himself before God and actually believe that he could love us. That's a tremendous act of faith that I go... I want to tell you, I am trash. I feel like trash. And God loves me. He calls me his son. And he says, you are precious to me. And I believe it. He loves you. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to hear me clearly. In Christ... You can please God as his child. You can harmonize with heaven. Sanctification, here's the good news. It's something God is doing to you. He is making you holy. Not self-righteousness. Not meritorious on your part. It's you being an obedient child. You are his adopted child. You are forgiven. You are forever washed clean. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less than he currently loves you in Christ. I'm not giving you self-help. I want to give you God. I want to give you Jesus. So don't take your spiritual temperature each day. Don't wake up and go, oh, great, I screwed up yesterday. That must mean I'm going back around. I'm I'm working backwards on the holiness scale. Don't do that. Because spiritual growth is like physical fitness. It doesn't take months. It usually takes years to see drastic impacts. There have been times where in my life where I say, "I'm, I'm just, I must be so close to heaven because I'm so holy. I'm, you know, the Holy Spirit cooked me. I'm done. I'm ready to go. And then I had kids. And I'm growing. And I continue to grow. But I'm thankful that Christ's robes of righteousness are one size fits all. They're for everybody. I want to be holy. I want to walk in a manner 
as the Bible says, worthy of my calling. I've been called to that. Holiness is possible not because of how hard I work, but because of the work Jesus accomplished on my behalf. It's finished. I'm going to close with a a story. There's a little boy. He had been attending church for a while with his mother, and he was determined one Sunday, he said, I'm going to find Jesus. He knew he had to be here somewhere. So he goes to his mom, Mom, I have to use the body. Okay, okay, go on, you know, go, be, be, be quick. You know, this is his chance to sneak around. So he's going around, he's looking in a couple of Sunday school rooms. Jesus, are you in here? No, Jesus wasn't there. Oh, the pastor's office. If Jesus is going to be anywhere, he's going to be in the pastor's office. Jesus, you in here? No response. Time for the Holy of Holies, the place he would never be allowed to go, the woman's bathroom. (laughs) He cracks it open, the lavender scent hits him. Jesus, you in here? No response. Downcast, he went back to his mother. His mother didn't even see him. She didn't even notice that he came back, and she was bowing her head. They were having communion. So the pastor gave out the bread, gave out the the wine, and she drank and ate, and the pastor closed the worship, and he said, Mama, what was was that all about? What was the food about? Mom said, well, that's communion. That's what we do. We do it in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He died so that his body is blood, and that's what's going on. So we eat and drink. And the little boy smiled and he said, Mom, Jesus was inside you the whole time. Isaiah, the angel said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Mary, the angel said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be called Holy, the Son of God. Do you get it? Emmanuel, he's with us. The king is with us. The king has promised to live within us, to be with us. The king is not just on his throne. He's there, but he's dwelling with his people. That's the beauty of the holy God. He walks with the lowly. His home is with the lowly. Jesus, our Emmanuel, holy. Let's pray.